Okay, so the last podcast I did, I went through some of what I thought were the topical issues and problems with pensions at the moment. And it was helpfully pointed out to me that perhaps I should think about some answers to some of those issues. So that's what we're going to cover today. I'm going to come back to the stronger nudge, and I'm really going to focus in on this question of engagement, which is such a recurring theme at the moment. I want to talk a bit about retirement journeys. I'm going to talk about the dashboard and the projections related to that. I'm going to talk about the pension tax system, and I make no apology for that because it will be interesting. So stay with me for that. And I just want to talk a bit about the regulatory architecture, the actual framework we're operating in, because I think it's a problem. I think it's part of the problem. And I think we need to think about that if we're actually going to move forward from where we are. I was going to cover state pension ages, and in particular, the announcement from Emmanuel Macron that they're going to change, they're not going to change the retirement age in France. He was going to put it up from 62 to 65, and he's resiled from that. And I thought that was kind of interesting. I suspect we won't have time in this podcast, but it's one I want to come back to because, of course, we've got this review of state pension ages underway in the UK at the moment. So there's that. Right. So your regular reminder that the Landcat is the best financial services consultancy, if not definitely in the whole of the UK, then certainly of any based in Leith. We do data analysis consultancy on the advisor and platform sectors, and we do PR and political strategy advice. And we're very good at it. Okay, so there we are. Right. Thanks to Steve Lowe from the Just Group, my longtime friend and uh, occasional ally, who got in touch to, to just clarify something I'd said about the stronger nudge and when providers actually have to apply the nudge if someone's taking advice. And the point is, if a financial advisor contacts a pension provider on a client's behalf to say, look, these are the retirement plans, this is what we're doing, then the provider doesn't have to push the customer towards pension-wise guidance. It's only if you contact the provider yourself and then, even if you've taken advice, they will still try and push you towards pension-wise guidance. So thank you for that. And this is all in the context of contract-based pensions rather than the occupational pensions. And I also just want to kind of make clear that getting people to take pension-wise is a good thing, right? So all of the feedback says people who take pension-wise guidance are happier for having done it. And the big problem is that not enough people are getting the guidance in the first place. And what I think is interesting here, and this is going to be a bit of a recurring theme, is that the, the key is to get people engaged earlier, doing it at the point people are making decisions around what to do with their retirement pot is in many ways too late. But I also recognise that nudging someone two years out and saying, you know, just in case you might be thinking of taking money out of your pension pot in two years' time, maybe you should think about talking to PensionWise now. That probably isn't going to cut it either. And I recognise that this is complicated. I think Guy Opperman was on to something with the way he was pushing the, the kind of MOT idea that as you move into your 50s, you should get a kind of fairly comprehensive sort of take a step back and, and consider where you're at with your finances. But I think it actually goes further than that in a couple of ways. So one is I would like, and this is something I highlighted in my review of maps, that I would like to see pension wise do more blending with what happens with private pension providers. So I think we just need to be a bit more pragmatic about 
the touch points that people experience with pensions already. And I know from my time at, at Hargreaves and from talking to other pension providers, they're, they're pretty good at reaching out to customers and engaging them. And I think a rather than just keeping maps over here and pension providers over here and never the twain shall meet, yes, we're asking pension providers to make appointments for maps. I, I would go further than that. And I would start by asking the question, what does good look like? What is it we're actually trying to achieve here? And it's not just the pension providers. You look at businesses like Money Alive or, or Guide, spelled with two eyes. They're doing really good stuff at connecting people with the decision-making. So, you know, the question should really be, how can we best get people engaged with decision-making? And then what are the tools we've got available to do that? And I don't feel like at the moment... We're really coming at it from that end. And I was also really struck as I was reflecting on this. One of the key failings of auto-enrollment was in not recognising and understanding the importance of the customer's relationship with their pension, with their pension provider. And we got seduced by the sexy wiles of auto-enrollment and default membership mediated through the workplace. And we just, we were blinded to the importance of the relationship that exists between the individual and the pension provider. Let's just get the employers to do the heavy lifting, engage members as little as possible. And the, the mantra back in the mid-2000s, when we were first looking at this and all the stuff was being done by Adair Turner, and we had Shlomo Bonanti and other people coming over and talking about how defaults work. Everything was about just, just don't talk to the members, just put them in. If the more you talk to them, the more things will go wrong. And that might have made sense back in 2008 when we were writing the legislation on auto-enrollment, but the world is very different now. And that actually doesn't work, particularly not since 2015 and the introduction of pension freedoms. That was a real game changer. And I think you can now look back on auto-enrollment and say, okay, that changes fundamentally the nature of the relationship. And particularly also when you look at the proliferation of the small pots and the problem that pension providers have in just not being able to talk to people, not being able to reach out to people about the small pots, the dashboard will help. The dashboard is a good thing, but the dashboard is the very fact that we need the dashboard. It's symptomatic of the problem that auto-enrollment created, which was of not really establishing a robust relationship between individuals and their pension providers. And elsewhere in the past, I've argued that people should actually have been given the choice of which pension provider their employer pays money into. So if I join a new employer and I'm a happy Hargreaves Lansdowne customer, then I should be able to say to my employer, look, I don't want you to auto enroll me into your workplace pension. Lovely though it is, can you just put your contributions into my pension with Hargreaves Lansdowne? And only for people who actually don't express that preference would you then have a backstop of a, a default scheme into which you'd auto enroll people. So build on the existing system and give people more choice. Now, for lots of reasons, that idea was rejected, and I get the fact that it would have complicated the system. But what we actually need is to build a better relationship between individuals and their pension providers. And the starting point for this is to get people's email addresses. Too often, pension providers actually can't establish meaningful relationships with their customers because they have no communication point. They can stick a letter in the post to them, but people don't read those. So I would actually go back to the auto-enrollment legislation. And I, you know, I'm agnostic about how you do this, whether you use implied consent or put it into people's contracts of employment, but I would make sure that employers are passing on to pension providers 
the individual members, the individual employees' personal email address. You have to do that, right? If you want this system to work in the new world that we live in today, you have to get those email addresses across to pension providers because all the pension providers are telling me, all the auto-enrollment providers are telling me, the biggest problem they have is not being able to connect with the customers. And once that individual leaves that workplace, obviously their workplace email address is no use anymore. You know, you can send messages to that, but you're just going to bounce back. So getting people's email addresses would be a big step forward. And I would actually think about how you could build that into the legislation. The SCA has been doing a lot of consumer journey work around this, and I think that's another one to come back to. But I also now want to just go on to the retirement engagement. So getting people's email addresses at the front end would help us engage with them as they go along. But I went back and looked at a paper that the ABI put out, written in conjunction with Frontier Economics. And they too highlight the fact that nudging early is far more effective than doing it at the point of retirement. So there's a recurring theme here. We all get the fact that engaging with people ahead of their 55th birthday or whenever is really a key element of the solution here. And in spite of what Steve Webb says, and I listen to a lot of what Steve says, I've got a lot of time for him, but you know, defaults don't work in this context. They might work in the, the Democratic People's Republic of Thornbury and Yate, but you can't just default people into retirement. Yeah, their needs are too idiosyncratic. They're too unique to their circumstances. Auto enrollment works at the front end, but I think it works much less effectively at the back end. And we also know that people are unwilling to pay for advice. And it's also really striking how things have evolved since 2015, how much we're seeing big lump sums coming out. People are actually focusing a lot of their attention on the pots of money. So below £10,000, pretty much all the pots go out as cash. And even up to £30,000, around two thirds go out as lump sums. And even with larger pots, it's very common for people to take cash out and to defer income. And I'm going to come on to the tax implications of that, because I think that's really important. And as the FCA said in their financial life survey in 2020, the decision to access a pension is not strongly linked to retirement. So you know, we need to think about that. So because that that's a fairly fundamental challenge to the whole purpose of pensions and what we're trying to do here. I mean, people like the tax-free lump sum. And I think taking that out of pensions would be a hell of a step. You know, I'm not suggesting we go down that road, but I do think we need to think about the implications of the way people are behaving with regard to their pension pots. And I also want to focus on sustainable withdrawal rates, which was something the ABI went into in some detail in their paper. People struggle with this, right? So I'm quoting here from the ABI's paper, 56% of pots across all sizes have potentially unsustainable withdrawal rates of over 6%, and 42% have over 8% being paid out. Slatter falls to 35% for pots of over 30,000. But even for pots of over 100,000, right, you've still got income withdrawal rates. Around a quarter of them are paying out 8% or more, right? That's pretty worrying. What's equally worrying is we don't actually know whether they're making good decisions or not. And it may be that there are perfectly logical reasons why people are acting in this way. But we really need qualitative insights to understand what's going on there. The PPI 
did some analysis on this, and their suggestion is that a withdrawal rate of 3.5% gives you a 95% chance of not running out of your savings. Whereas if you go up to a 7% withdrawal rate, you've got a pretty much 50-50 chance of running out of money before your average life expectancy. So the ABI's answer on all of this is they would like to give better guidance around what appropriate investments look like. If you're taking out a lump sum, what combination of tax-free and taxable income to take, whether and when to take an income, how much to withdraw, and what a sustainable income withdrawal rate looks like. And that all seems to me eminently sensible. I mean, according to the ABI's research across their members, i.e. the life codes and platforms, a third of them said that withdrawal behaviours are one of their top concerns, and, and two-thirds of providers said that this concern will grow in the future. They don't have visibility about what people are doing, so they can't judge whether people are making good decisions or not. And until such time as Henry Tapper's CDC solution for retirement is up and running and we've all bought into that, we need a solution to this problem. I do know that frequent reviews are an essential element of the equation, that you know, a fire and forget strategy absolutely doesn't work. But possibly moving beyond perimeter guidance by talking through people's circumstances and guiding them on what a sustainable income looks like, talking about investment risks, nudging them around, getting a guaranteed secure income, particularly when people move into their mid-late 70s, all of these things seem to me eminently sensible, and we should be thinking about how we can build that kind of stuff into the regulatory framework we're operating in. You know, we should be able to use digital prompts to alert customers if if their income withdrawal patterns start to look troubling. And what I don't understand is why the industry isn't actively lobbying to make this happen, because you've got the consumer duty coming down the tracks. And it feels like the industry really needs to win this argument. It needs to reframe the debate around how we serve customers more effectively and how we use the tools available to us. And we do have these tools. It's not like we don't know how to do it, how we use these tools to deliver good outcomes for customers. Because if we don't do this now, then at some point in a few years' time, a politician or a regulator is going to come along and give everybody a good kicking for letting down their customers. And you can see this coming. So, so this, to me, feels like a really important thing for the industry to be fighting on now. Okay, I'm just going to leave that there. We'll, we'll sort of loop back around a bit in a minute. I wanted to then go on to something Rachel Vay here, AJ Bell, has, has, has made much of, and she, she pointed me towards this last time we spoke, and she's been written this up in Money Marketing and elsewhere. It's about the Financial Reporting Council's Actuarial Standard Technical Memorandum 1 regarding statutory money purchase illustrations and the consultation they've got out until the 6th of May, so still time to respond, around the rules for the projections that will be used on pension dashboards. So this is quite important. And they set out some consultation questions around how the projected fund will be calculated and the estimated retirement income that people will get and how they want to align these with SMPIs. And that all seems eminently sensible and helpful. People find it useful to have a projection of the size of the pot of money they can expect from their savings in decades to come, and also what kind of income they should get from that. But what worries me about this is the FRC is proposing four different volatility groups 
depending on the composition of the asset mix and the volatility of the different funds available. So they broadly group them across different groupings and said, if you're in this group, these are the assumptions that we're going to use for the projection. And providers are going to have to recalculate that asset mix and volatility on a regular basis to keep it all up to date. And the FRC say in their consultation paper that they actually considered and rejected a single accumulation rate. They said, nope, you've got to use different accumulation rates. And what strikes me about this is I think that they are massively overthinking this, right? This isn't just spurious accuracy, right, in pretending that you can make projections on different asset classes for decades into the future and pretend that you're doing this with any degree of accuracy. This is spurious accuracy, going out on a bender, drinking tequila slammers till four o'clock in the morning and coming home with a hangover. It just makes no sense. What All economic projections are wrong. We know that, right? So what customers actually need, really, is just a simple projection. Pick a number, 5%, real return, 2%, 3%, whatever you want, right? Here is an indication of what you might get at retirement. And by the way, if we don't do this, right, two things happen. We've increased costs. So, you know, when someone comes along in the future and says, oh, pensions are too expensive, look at all these costs. Look, this is on you. You're making it more expensive, right? Because every time you do something like this, you increase the costs, right? If you make things simple, it costs less money and it makes it more engaging for customers. So go with one growth rate, pick a number, go with one decumulation assumption, reduce complexity, and critically here, Focus a lot of energy on getting people to revisit this on an ongoing basis, year after year, like a like a guided missile, right, which veers a little bit off course and corrects and veers a bit off course and corrects and keeps doing that all the way through its trajectory from the moment it's launched. It keeps making mistakes and correcting them right up to the point when it hits its target. And that's kind of what customers have to do here, is to keep revisiting it finding out the numbers are wrong and revisiting it, but it will home in on a target and then there won't be a surprise for them when they get to retirement. And on that point of just picking a number, right, I love the way government websites have developed. You know, when you need to renew your driving license or get a passport or any, any look up your state pension or whatever, the design template that is now used by the government websites, I think are fantastic because it's really clean and really simple. And click a button, answer a question, move on. Next page, click a button, answer a question, move on. It's brilliant, right? So that's the kind of thing we need at the front end of this. Make sure people understand that this is just an assumption, that it is going to be wrong. It's just a helpful projection to try and help you along a little bit, right? And get them to understand that they need to revisit this stuff. You can do it. I mean, if the government can do it, anybody can do it, right? So so that's the kind of design template that we want. And that's what good engagement looks like. And that's the kind of stuff that will ultimately lead people to running in towards retirement and engaging with pension-wise, because all the way along there, they've been getting people helpfully nudging them towards thinking about this stuff. So then I wanted to throw in pension tax relief. And this was, I mean, I've been thinking about this anyway, but then David Robbins very helpfully did a freedom of information request that got published the research that had been commissioned by the Treasury back in 2016 when they were doing their review of pension taxation. And hold the front page. It turns out many people were not especially aware of the tax system in place for pensions. Four in 10, just four in 10 of people aged 16 to 55 correctly believe 
that the government tops up people's pension contributions through tax relief, only four in 10. A quarter think the government provides no top up and a third don't know. Now, this was research conducted for the Treasury in 2016 when they were reviewing tax relief. They also found that most people significantly underestimate the amount of tax relief granted by the government. And as they dryly go on to observe, improving awareness of the government top-up may encourage more people to save into a pension. And that's like no shit Sherlock kind of territory there. Among those with pension savings who are aware of pension tax relief, six in 10, 57%, consider it to have been an important factor in their decision to invest in a pension. So the single biggest lever the government has to drive behaviour, one that's costing tens of billions of pounds, that is itself a regressive measure that benefits higher earners most and largely used to prop up a privileged minority, is largely being wasted, right? So, I mean, how does this look like a good system? I mean, how can you justify doing this? How can you justify spending tens of billions of pounds of public money on a system that does not work? People don't know you're doing it. And if people did know you were doing it and understood how it worked, it would encourage them to save more. And we all know that the single most important thing in determining what you get out of your pension is how much you pay in at the front end. So the tax relief helps, but really it's down to what you and your employer pay in. So that government top-up is helpful. So when you look at it in that context, the current system just makes no sense at all. But it comes to context because tax relief was was introduced back in a world when mostly people had final salary pensions and jobs for life. In a world where the overwhelming priority is now to help people get on top of the responsibility for plan for their own retirement, it makes no sense at all. And I was also struck that back in 2016, the government only considered a very limited range of options. So option one, keep things as they are. Option two, go for a flat rate system. And then option three was kind of roughly where they ended up with the lifetime ISIS. So a modest top up at the front and tax-free income at the end. But I think they need to look at this again. And I think they need to look at it because of pension freedoms and the way people are accessing their pensions in new ways. And that revealed behavior suggests that people are looking at pensions in an increasingly different way to the ways that were assumed when this system was built. I think the death benefits are just plain idiotic. And I'm open to to arguments to the contrary, but I haven't heard any that that persuade me yet. If you give all this tax relief to people to persuade them to build up a pot of money, and then through the inheritance tax system, you actually incentivize them to not draw on that money, that makes no sense to me because that money gets passed on tax-free to your inheritors. I mean, why would you do that? I mean, I know the only reason it was done was so... George Osborne could throw some red meat to to the party conference in 2014. But, you know, we're in a different place now. I also think, critically, auto-enrolment has delivered mass participation, and very few people are likely to opt out of the free money granted by their employer. So we can take participation largely for granted. I also think, by the way, the continuing restriction of both the lifetime and the annual allowance makes no sense to anyone except for the fact that the Treasury has baked it into their numbers. So, you know, they keep saying, oh, well, we can't move this because, because we're assuming we'll get some tax from that. Well, okay, fine. So we need to reframe the question because the annual allowance certainly made sense when it was a quarter of a million pounds a year ceiling. But 
you know, with the annual allowance now of £40,000, arguably we don't need a lifetime allowance anymore. Or if you're going to have the lifetime allowance, and I'd prefer us not to, then you know, restricting people to a £40,000 contribution, again, makes no sense. So have one or the other, but not both, and preferably get rid of the lifetime allowance, because I think if people save well and invest well and their pot grows more than expected, they shouldn't be penalised for that. So my mate Nathan over at Hargreaves Lansdowne and I did some work around this, and I think the sort of framework we should be looking at is something more along the lines of you don't need to give tax relief on the contributions in respect of auto-enrolment. Because people are going to do it anyway, right? If my employer is going to give me a 3% top-up, I am going to put 4% into my pension. It's a given. I don't need that extra 1% top-up from the government to persuade me to do that. So why are we giving it to me, right? Just, just don't, right? But then beyond that, we want to incentivize people to save more. We want people to make voluntary contributions above the auto-enrolment minimum. And for that... We should be giving very generous top-ups, you know, do a do a two-for-one offer or something like that. So for the next few thousand pounds of pension savings, for every two pounds I put in, the government will put in a pound. Now, that's easy to communicate and attractive. People would buy it in both senses of the word. So go for that generous top-up for the next few thousand pounds to a point where, one, the Treasury can afford it, but also, two, people are saving enough such that the combination of the state pension their auto-enrolment savings pass and any private pension savings they top up on top of that will put them in a place where they can afford to live in retirement. They won't be a burden on the state. They might not be super rich, but they'll do okay. Above that, why give any tax relief at all? Just let people put money into a pension and allow them to have tax-free growth and maybe stick with the 25% tax-free on the way out. So there's a modest tax gradient in their favour. You don't need to do any more than that. Now, that's the kind of question the Treasury should be asking themselves, is how do we incentivize people to save and how do we use that public money as efficiently as possible? Okay, so I just want to now come on to the regulatory architecture because I've been, I've been thinking about this a bit as well. Okay, we've got, I, I believe, I just looked this up online, so it may be completely wrong. We've got around 4,000 people employed by the FCA, not necessarily all working there because I understand morale in the house is not fantastic and they're, and they're going on strike. And I understand there's around 800 people down in Brighton at the pensions regulator. Now, the former answers to the Treasury and the latter, the pensions regulator answers to the DWP. An auto-enrolment is the pension regulator's job, but but contract-based pensions belong to the FCA, except that some contract-based pensions are used for auto-enrolment. And so the FCA has recently retrofitted independent governance committees to their auto-enrolment schemes as a kind of trustee-light solution. And it's already starting to look like a bit of a mess. And you get massive duplication of effort on things like value for money or on ESG policy, where you have separate policy teams at both the DWP and at the Treasury, and then at the pensions regulator and the FCA, all formulating their regulations, which do not always align, as I touched on in the last podcast. You know, they're supposed to be working together, but I see little evidence of that. Why does the Department for Work and Pensions oversee the pensions regulator, who in turn oversees auto-enrolment? Well, I think this is, I think, this is largely a legacy of the final salary occupational pensions world that we existed in when we had the Occupational Pensions Regulatory Authority. And you can see that back then it made some sense because we were contracting out an element of the state pension and devolving responsibility of that for that to funded workplace pensions. So 
The DWP oversees the state pension. So if we're going to get private pension schemes to deliver a bit of a state pension for us, we better have a body to oversee that. And it makes sense to do that in the in the context of, of workplace pensions. But this now is the regulatory equivalent of Morris Dancing and the Maypole, right? These are rituals that evolved centuries ago in an agricultural society, which make little objective sense in the globalised digital world we live in today. And the same is true of this division of responsibility between the DWP and the Treasury and the FCA and the pensions regulator. And, and you know, we're not talking here about quaint cultural legacies like, like you know, May Day parades. We're talking about the regulation of an industry that handles trillions of pounds of our savings. And I seem to remember the question coming up in the DWP committee a few years ago, and I may be wrong on the details, of this, but I seem to remember Guy Opperman and John Glenn were both giving evidence together, and they're pretty good double acts. You know, I, you know, I, think, I think they're both effective ministers, so this isn't a dig at them at all. And the question was posed, you know, should we just merge TPR and FCA? And there, it was clear that there was no appetite for this, and I don't think there is any appetite for this, and I don't think anything will happen on that front until someone picks it up and drives it forward. But but it is a mess, right? It doesn't work. There's huge duplicated effort and costs. So I'd give all defined contribution pensions to the FCA, right? Right there, okay? Just, you know, master trusts the lot. Give them to the FCA. I get the pensions regulator just to manage the runoff of DB pensions. I get the DWP to focus on state pensions and pension credit, on which it is significantly underperforming, right? They literally can't give the money away, right? So in the new world that we live in today with auto-enrollment and DC pensions and pension freedoms, right, it makes sense for the DWP to manage the state pension and for the pensions regulator to handle the runoff of the legacy DB pension schemes. It makes sense for the Treasury to handle savings policy and the FCA to handle people's engagement with their retirement savings, with master trusts, DC pensions, private individual pension schemes. So in summary, right, we need, to re- we need to restructure the regulatory framework. We need to redesign the pension tax relief system. And, and we should start with the primary objective of making saving for retirement simple and engaging. Every time we're faced with a regulatory policy issue, we should be asking ourselves the question, which is more important, accuracy or simplicity? consumer engagement, or complexity. And essentially, we should be putting the consumer at the heart of the system and building everything out from there. How do we help people save for retirement? And we're paying lip service to that, but we're doing it in a a, a system that was designed and built in a different age. And I understand all the reasons why the system exists today, but it doesn't work anymore. So we need to change it, right? And that's what I'd love to see the industry pushing the government to do. So I'm going to leave it there. We'll do the state pension age, retirement ages, and and the French pension system next time around. If you've got any comments about everything I've just run through, do please get in touch. It's good to get feedback. Thanks for listening.